I never trust people in power to give the keys back. They really don't like giving it back. My biggest fear is the civil liberties implication of, of what will come after this. Down the road, uh, when I say down the road, I mean a year, two years from now, there is a risk of um, very serious inflation. And I think we will look back on this if we ever have a chance to do so with with an impartial inquiry and say, how on earth uh, did we go mad to this extent? It simply wasn't justified. And I think there will be, when this is examined, a fair number of excess deaths. This is political belief and ideology over rational scientific argument. I still don't think people understand what's about to happen. I really don't think they understand that we leave ourselves vulnerable at some point of a not too distant future to blackouts. It's about to blow up this year. It's about to blow up. Francis, do you like Scottish wildlife? Yeah, I love Glasgow on a Friday night. No, you idiot. I mean Scottish birds and... Oh, you mean Morag? Nah, we're not seeing each other anymore. If you do love Scottish natural woodlands and the wildlife, then you have to check out established titles. They're selling one square foot of dedicated land with a unique plot number on a private estate in Edelston in Scotland and an official certificate with a crest. Established titles is a fun and novel way to preserve the natural woodlands of Scotland whilst helping global reforestation efforts. It's a project based on a historic Scottish custom where landowners are referred to as lairds. The Scottish call them lairds because they can't spell lords. It's the whiskey. I'm gonna ignore that. They plant a tree with every order and work with global charities, One Tree Planted and Trees for the Future to support global reforestation efforts. You could officially include the title Lord or Lady on your credit card, plane tickets, dating profiles, etc. It makes a great last minute gift unless you're a socialist and you want the aristocracy abolished. Established Titles is actually running a massive early Black Friday sale right now. Plus, if you use the code Trigonometry, you get an additional 10% off. Go to establishedtitles.com slash trigonometry to get your gifts now. Go to establishedtitles.com slash trigonometry and get 10% off this wonderful gift. Hello, Stavros? This is Lord Foster of Croydon, mate. Yes, what I want, kebab, salt and pepper, extra, chilli sauce, salt and vinegar on the chips. What do you mean, you shut? I'm a lord. You should always be open for me. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want Honest conversations with fascinating people. We have a collection of guests for you today, but before that we should explain why we're sitting in front of a black curtain again. And the reason is our new studio is being built literally as we speak, so this is what we're doing with it at the moment. But rest assured, it will be back very, very shortly. And as those of you who are on Locals know, it's going to be absolutely awesome. We've posted a bunch of backstage footage of it so you can see what is going on. Uh, but in the meantime, one of the things we've always focused on the show is attempting 
to give you information about some of the economic trends that are coming and some of the other things that are going on in the world that are likely to happen in the future. So what we've done for you today is we've collected a bunch of times when our former guests have predicted what was about to happen in a way that we think was going to be very useful to you. So enjoy. Our brilliant and returning guest this week is Mike Driver. You may remember we did an interview with him some time ago. He's a serial entrepreneur, all-round good guy, and someone who has a lot of very counterintuitive ideas. So, Mike Driver, welcome back to Trigonometry. I'm delighted to be back. Thanks for having me again. Mike, uh, what is it that we're not seeing? What is it that we're not talking about? What do you, with a kind of totally different mindset to most people that I know, what what is out of our field of vision that's coming? Well, I think one of the consequences, I mean, I'm not, I think people are talking about this, but that my, my biggest fear, and, and it's not my biggest fear for, for the economy or the country, maybe the biggest fear for the country, is the civil liberties implication of, of what will come after this. Um, a rushing a vaccine through, that's a frightening prospect um, in many ways. Vaccinating many young people who who don't necessarily need a vaccine is is concerning. Um, thinking about how you're going to be monitored, how you're going to be tagged, how how uh, your movements are going to be big brothered. Um, I think all of these things. I think is it Jeremy Bentham and the concept of the people's behaviour changed the panopticon if they're watched all the time their their behaviour changes and and I think that's quite dynamic amongst populations as well I think for some people for many people and it kind of goes back to the the Huxley and the the brave new world view of where we are is they is they may embrace that they may embrace that um, that 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 sort of monitoring that herding to use a the phrase in a different way well there's many many other people and they're the people that affect change who are going to find that intolerable so it, it took breaking the law to change many of the things that we now take for granted be it the suffragettes or homosexuality or many of those things um it took people who 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 who, who are prepared to step outside the boundaries and similarly, the way the way most entrepreneurial people think is 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 to be is to be outside of the mainstream. And I think if we limit that, and I think that is that is perhaps the thing that worries me most is we will limit the ability of those people who affect change to do so. And so, where where will that where will that leave us in a, in a very homogenous? world that's uh, not a world i particularly want to live in mike well let me push back on that a little bit because as you know i you know if there was anyone who was concerned about the erosion of our civil liberties restrictions of free speech that's me i've been pretty outspoken about this for a long time but i've got to be honest with you i don't i look around i mean yes in australia they're talking about some kind of app to track your immunity status and and that would be a hill that i'm i'm prepared to die on i'm not signing up to any fucking app that tracks me around the country no way but but if you can't from, travel would you right that but this is yeah i mean yeah I mean, this is exactly point. this is exactly my point if, yeah. if someone said to you uh your passport is dependent on you carrying your contact tracing app yeah then then most of us would and it's it erodes doesn't it so mm. it starts with a contract 
tracing app where does it go after that right but my, my broader point i mean i take your point on that and that is a, a step way too far in my opinion but more broadly speaking i do see the the you know a lot of the people we've had on the show who we like and respect kind of in my opinion going way off the deep end on this stuff and talking about how we're all under house arrest and all this crap which i i think is a massive exaggeration i think a temporary and necessary lockdown is not the same as house arrest I personally don't feel like Western governments have been overly restrictive about this in, in proportion to the threat that we're facing. You know, it is a, a warlike time. You accept a little bit more imposition on your freedoms during that time, provided they're time limited, provided they're specific, provided we can go back to, you know, having a free society afterwards. I, do, do you see signs that that's not going to happen? Is, what, what, what's the reason for your concern? I, I never trust people in power to give the keys back. Um, once, 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 once they get this similar to the the um, MMT conversation that we had earlier. Once you give um, people in power power uh, and consider that their their reasons for living are, the, are to obtain power, they really don't like giving it back. Um, so. I, th I, I do, I, I, while, while I might not be at the, at the further end of the spectrum of the previous guests you've had, I, uh, we, we as a country, as a, as a species, have fought and lost millions of lives to maintain uh, freedoms. And I don't think that should be lost. Um, there are consequences, there's serious consequences to giving up um, giving up the things that, that, that enable us to change. And I think that's, that, that's what scares me most is when you have a contact tracing app that you need to have, you have you've given um, the political order a lever in, with which to dictate or with which to demand your, your obedience. And anything that does that, anything that does that more, I think that that's that would be very very worrying. And you, you say you'd die on a hill for it, but the reality is most people won't. Mm. And then when most people won't, you'll be you'll be in the minority. And then your wife will want to take a nice holiday somewhere, and and your kids will be saying, "Dad's an idiot. What difference does it make?" And and compliance will become the norm. And that that worries me. And fascinating people we have for you today. Two brilliant returning guests to trigonometry. Here they are, Jim Rickards and Pippa Malgram, two expert economists, people who understand finance, people who understand uh, what is going to happen, tech as well, with all of those things that we're going to get into. Jim, Pippa, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Is there going to be hell to pay for, for the money that we are now using to save people's jobs and protect businesses? No, there's there's no chance of inflation. Um, in fact, the the real policy concern <laughs> is and will be deflation. Now, down the road, uh, I'm not, when I say down the road, I mean a year, two years from now, there is a risk of um, very serious inflation bordering on hyperinflation, but not now and not for at least a year. And here's why. Inflation has nothing to do with money supply. This is sort of a um, I'll call it a myth or a misunderstanding that's been propagated by everyone from the neo-Keynesians to the monetarists to the Austrians. 
you know, increase the money supply, too much money chasing too few goods. Um, inflation is right around the corner. It, it's not true. Money supply has nothing to do with inflation. Um, what does drive inflation is uh, psychology, um, it, it, which shows up in the form of velocity. So let's say I have a, let's say I'm feeling good. I go out to dinner, you know, I tip the waiter. Um, he takes a taxi home and tips the taxi driver and the taxi driver uh, takes the tip and puts gas in uh, her taxi. Mm. Uh, well, that, in that example, my dollar has velocity of three. There was a, mm. a tip, uh, a taxi tip and gasoline. So velocity of three. Instead, imagine I stay home and watch television. Uh, my money has velocity of zero. Right. And I remind people that $5 trillion times zero is zero. <laughs> if you don't have velocity, you don't have an economy, period. Mm. So the task is, and, and Pippa t- uh, touched on this, and she's exactly right. The task is to change the psychology, change the expectations. Uh, you can print all the money you want. The, the Fed can stick the landing on uh, base money, M0. M, M, mm. M1, you know, M2 is a, a, a different matter, but M0, they can print that to like, two decimal mm. places. Not a problem. But they can't get people to lend it. They can't get people to spend it. Uh, they can't get people to um, to just save. In other words, what are people doing with the money? They are they are either going to uh, well, if you if you have a high marginal propensity to consume, meaning you're you know you're living paycheck to paycheck, and you need to pay the rent. Yes, you'll pay the rent. Fair enough. But um, for many people, they will uh, save it uh, for the reason Pippa mentioned, which is they're worried about how long is this going to last. You know, even if you're not laid off. If your neighbor was laid off, you're probably worried about your own job, so you'll save it on a precautionary basis, or you'll pay off uh, you know, a credit card, pay down an auto loan, which is economically the same thing. Hmm. It's just another form of saving. So that's what people are gonna do with the money. The, you won't see the velocity from it. Pippa, before Francis jumps in, let me ask you this, because you're a former advisor to two US presidents. If you're sitting in the Oval Office right now, and you're looking at the fact, and this, I come back to the issue of globalization here, you're looking at the fact that 97% of your antibiotics are made in China. You know, a huge quantity and percentage of your essential supplies are made in China. A lot of particularly right-leaning commentators have been banging away at this point. You know, we've become reliant on China for essential supplies in a world where, you know, I mean, we don't know exactly what's happened with this virus, but there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, it's not without China's at best incompetence that this has spread the way that it has, right? So if you can't trust them and, you know, when when the the proverbial hits the fan, countries tend to lock down and go, I need this and you're not having that. Are, are we, you know, as a president of the United States or the prime minister of Britain, are you going to go, we need to onshore not just manufacturing of widgets and iPhones, we need to onshore manufacturing of medical supplies, syringes, vent- everything. Yes. Uh, And it's not only because, you know, China didn't handle it well. I think probably most countries wouldn't have handled it well. Uh, I'm not sure that the British did so much better and they were loaded with a lot more information and they were still slow. But the main thing is what you're talking about is a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. And for many years, we have gone after efficiency and Mm. cheaper prices, ever cheaper prices, Mm. that that was our driver. Now we're faced with this reality that resilience is is interfered with by that. And I'd like to use the example in Formula One racing. It's a constant race between resilience and efficiency. And what you're doing is you rip that car apart every single day. 
and you try to shave one gram of weight off of the thing hmm. so that you improve its chances of winning. But that one gram may be the thing that breaks the piece that you're working on. So it's either correct or catastrophe, right? You're on the borderline all the time. Well, this is where we are with the economy. We chose efficiency, 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 and we shaved off that extra gram of cost by outsourcing it to China, and now we see a break. And therefore, now we're going to have an emphasis on resilience. Now, what does that mean? That means inflation. That means higher prices. It means you say, I'm willing to pay more for a British-sourced product or an American-sourced product so that I'm sure to get it, then I care about its reduced costs. And that's another channel through which higher prices begin to worm their way forward. Now, this in the light of the current president, let's just keep in mind who the current president is. The current president of the United States is a property guy. Property guys make all their money on inflation. They love inflation. And so what is his inclination going to be? He's always going to be, we should just have more debt. And the way you deal with the debt is you basically inflate. And that's okay. And by the way, inflations, they do tend to make asset markets go up, which means stock markets. And mm. I would argue we've had that inflation has shown up in recent years as higher asset prices. And everybody loved that part about it. And they ignored the fact that a consumer had to go from 1% inflation at the time of the financial crisis to say two and a half at the time of the COVID crisis. And that just sounds like nothing. But to Jim's point, that's a ton of inflation that lets you completely erode uh, the debt you owe the world. And the U.S. is particularly privileged in that because everybody's still willing to buy dollars from the states, even though we behave this way. And by the way, we have behaved this way throughout history because how do we pay for the American Revolution? on inflation. How do we pay for the Civil War? A much bigger inflation. How do we pay for Vietnam? Another inflation. And how are we going to pay for this mess? On inflation. And so that's why I said at the opening, I think that we're heading into inflation. So then the question becomes, what's the speed and magnitude of that thing? And, and I agree with Jim. Usually great inflations are preceded by a puff of deflation. And whether that lasts a year, 18 months, two years, I don't know. But we have seemingly set the stage for prices to begin creeping up. And for people to say, again, it's a psychological phenomenon, to say, you know, like in my world, I have people, companies who are saying, you know, the Chinese drones may be cheaper, but I'd rather buy British. Or the Chinese drones, uh, you know, maybe I can buy them, the supply chain's there but I'd rather work with someone who's closer and speaks English and can work with me to produce what I really require for my business. That means they're telling me they're willing to pay more for this. And I think they'll pay more for these things now that they go, I need to be digital and I need to not travel. I need to be more localized, not globalized. So in this sense, it all comes together to form a full circle that what Jim and I have written about inflation, which everybody says is a dead duck and never coming back to life is distinctly quacking in the background. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is... <laughs> Peter's ruined our introduction. But yeah. this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people and our brilliant returning guest is... 
Peter Hitchens, the author and journalist. Peter, welcome back to the show. Well, so far, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, we've never had a guest interrupt us mid-intro, but you've managed. So let's get straight into it. Uh, one of the reasons that we were really keen to have you back uh, on the show is that you have done a lot of alternative coverage, shall we say, of the lockdown and the coronavirus situation. So for anyone who has not been following your writing and opinions on this issue, just give us a brief overview of what is your opinion of what's happened and the lockdown measures that have been implemented. Okay, right from the start, I said that the response of the government was completely out of proportion to the size of the menace. I didn't say there was no disease. I didn't say nobody would die. I didn't say it wasn't horrible for a lot of people if they got it. But I said that as an event, it simply didn't justify the measures being taken either to suppress liberty or to suppress the economy. I think that the damage to both human liberty and to the economy have been huge and probably permanent. And I think we will look back on this if we ever have a chance to do so with, with an impartial inquiry and say, how on earth uh, did we go mad to this extent? It simply wasn't justified. How many people have died or otherwise suffered or will die or otherwise suffer as a result of these methods? The, the healthy old have suffered hugely in terms of being deprived of normal life. And as a, a brilliant man, Professor Sutrid Bhakti of the University of Mainz in Germany, warned at the beginning of this, and I did what I could to publicize this morning, it is precisely those people, the healthy, old, and active in society, who've suffered very, very greatly from this by being cut off from social contact and the amount of misery, which, of course, brings on death. That, of course, is the effect which I think everybody acknowledges on the rest of the health service. While the health service is concentrating entirely on COVID, all kinds of other things, particularly the detection and treatment of the major cancers, is put to one side. And I think there will be, when this is examined, a fair number of excess deaths which have resulted from this, this, this policy, which have not been COVID deaths or not even been remotely related to COVID, which are among people who, who were deprived of treatments and checks they otherwise would have got because of the panic. So, sure, we're all concerned. I, I completely concede that my opponents in this argument are concerned with saving human life and their motives are good. Well, actually, so am I. But I think not merely are my motives good, but I think my assessment of the situation is better than theirs. And I think if, if my policy, if, uh, much more closely aligned to what Sweden has done, had been followed, uh, fewer people uh, would have died. Do you think the health consequences are of uh, the way we've reacted are going to run for years and years? Well, I, I, you can't tell exactly how bad the damage is. Uh, the enormous loan which Maynard Keynes negotiated for this country from the United States at the end of the Second World War when Lend-Lease stopped, uh, was was negotiated, I think, uh, July of 1945, and wasn't paid off until December 2006. My entire childhood was spent in a country which was constantly weighed down by the paying off of and the paying of interest on that enormous loan. Uh, our lives were grayer and more pinched, and our public services worse. Uh, you look at look at things like council house building in the early 50s, look at the low standards of the architecture and the building. The, the country was poor, and it was poor because it was in debt, and, 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 but that was a debt honorably contracted as a result of war. On this occasion, it, it's going to be poor because of a debt contracted because of a government mistake. Rishi Sunak has no choice. It is, it is really a question of how soon he has to announce the emergency budget, the first, I think, of many emergency budgets 
which you will have to introduce, which I will be one of the few people who will not be shocked by. And the, the, these budgets will be very serious. And the people who think that it can all be loaded on the well-off are very much mistaken. The things, VAT, uh, the duties on all kinds of things, uh, due particularly on travel. I wonder how many people who, who long to go back on holiday are going to feel about how much more expensive it's going to be to go on holiday. Uh, quite possibly, there's going to be something called the capital levy, a, a raid on the savings. Everybody. That means, amongst other things, quite possibly on the value of, of houses which people have bought. It's unprecedented in, in, a, in, a, in a free country such as this, which people will find, particularly since it's, it's levied on the savings they've made from already taxed money, they'll find very oppressive. But the government will probably call it something like an NHS surcharge. It'll be very hard to resist politically, and I doubt very much whether the Labour opposition will resist it, because they will know, their own economists know, that there is no choice. The government is going to have to increase tax. The other thing that's going to happen is, as a country, we are going to be so much in debt that the the levels of, uh, of, of, of interest which we are going to be willing to pay uh, to the pension funds and the insurance companies, which loan so much of the money to the government, are going to be fantastically low. That means a raid on the pensions and savings of millions of people whose old ages will be under threat. That also happens. And the other thing is that the world will look at us and see an economy much weaker than most, and it may be less and less willing to lend us money on, on, on the terms which we've been willing to do so. And that one of the results of this will almost certainly be a decline in the international value of the pound sterling. So again, that, that, that has many, many effects, particularly on the cost of imported goods uh, and on our ability to travel abroad, which people will feel. There's going to be a lot of things going on, and it, it, all of them are going to hurt. Part of the problem is that people are living in this kind of dream time at the moment, the beautiful weather. Uh, the furloughing, which means people get paid for not working, the huge numbers of professionals in the southeast who are spared from the daily grind of commuting and so far have continued to be able to work from home. There will come a moment of awakening where many of those people find they don't have any jobs, or if they do, they're much worse paid than they were before. And that an economy based incredibly heavily on services, particularly shops and restaurants and bars, will have suffered enormously for months and months during which people couldn't actually make a living, and they can't. And it, the, a key feature of economics is not just the existence of money, but the speed with which it circulates. And if your salary isn't paid, or if the rent that you're owed isn't paid for a quarter of the year, then the damage it does to your personal economy and to the national economy is huge. And people say it'll be a V-shaped recession, we'll leap out of it. Well, I hope they're right. But I have a strong feeling that they may be over-optimistic about that. As I say, this is a dream time at the moment. This long, long period of sunny weather during which the chattering glasses have lazed in their gardens, drinking misted glasses of Waitrose Chablis, uh, thinking it's all going to be great. It isn't. Uh, they'll be lucky to be able to afford the Chablis when this is over, in my, like my guess. It's, it's going to be really hard. It can't be anything else. No one, no government's ever spent this much money in peacetime before. Horrifying prophecy there from Peter Hitchens. <laughs> the, the middle classes will have to go without Chablis. Indeed, um, it is a terrifying prospect, is it not? But they are. <laughs> it, it, may, it may go home in a way that other warnings don't. <laughs> hey, KK, do you like mattresses? Of course. In Russia, we make mattress out of skins of dead bears. We wrestle bear for pleasure and then skin and eat it. After that, we say prayer to glorious leader Vladimir Lenin, god of hunting. What if the bear kills you? That's how you know you're not Russian. 
Only when a man fights bear do you realize he's from weak country, like Venezuela. Always an education, mate. But if you are looking for mattresses, then you have to check out Emma Sleep. Emma Sleep create wonderful beds and mattresses at an affordable price. If you go on their website, they always have incredible discounts. And by using our link, www.emma-mattress.co.uk slash trigger, you get an incredible 5% off. That is an incredible deal. I replaced my bear skin with Emma Sleep Mattress. If only we had that in USSR, we would have defeated the evilest capitalist pig dogs. Insomnia destroyed the Soviet Union. You already get up to 50% off from Emma Sleep Mattress, plus an extra 5% off when you use our code. And that's not all. You also get free shipping and returns, up to 200 nights trial sleeps, a 10-year warranty with free shipping, delivery and returns, and washable covers to boot. You get all of this when you use the link www emma-mattress.co.uk slash trigger for an additional 5% off on top of whatever discount is on the website. So, if there's deal for 50% off, Trigonometry fans get 55% off. I will never look at Yogi Bear skin that generations of kissens have slept on in the same way again. I'm delighted to say that our brilliant guest today is a psychoanalyst and a Tavistock whistleblower. Marcus Evans, welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm a psychoanalyst, originally trained as a psychiatric nurse, worked in psychiatry for over 40 years. And for the last 20 of those in the NHS, I worked in the Tavistock as a senior member of staff, part of the management. And then uh, I I retired from the NHS uh, 18 months ago, and I took up a post as a governor, which is a voluntary post on the Tavistock uh, Board of Governors, and I resigned. Was, um, one of the issues that was being discussed at the time. Mm-hmm. And it has been embroiled in a, well, a scandal is probably the one wrong word to put it, but it is a scandal of sorts uh, around uh, the gender transitioning, gender transitioning of young children. Could you dive into that and explain to us what is happening at the moment? Yeah, so if you can picture, the, the sort of history of the Tavistock is in psychological work. It's not in medication or genetics. That all goes on at the Institute of Psychiatry and the Maudsley. So this is the, the sort of, you know, it, it's psychotherapeutics looking into the psychological functioning of the mind. But um, about 20 years ago, a service was set up called JIDS, which was an experimental service is basically seeing kids who are gender dysphoric. And the, the thing that set it apart from the rest of the trust was that there was a sort of recourse to sort of treating their problems hormonally. Um, and this was a sort of experimental and controversial treatment at the time. So in a way, it sort of it moved away from the Tavistock's traditions, if you like. I, I've been part of the man. I was part of the management for about twenty years. I was called the head of nursing, and then I, I was in charge of the adult and adolescent department for about five years. But my wife worked in in the JID service in about two thousand and five, and she went into the service because she was interested in working at the Tavistock. She got another bit of her job was doing uh, training, 
And she quickly came quite uncomfortable with the fact that a lot of kids were sort of, they come very determined, they're very fixed in their view that they're in the wrong uh, gender and that they, they, they want to transition and they want to be given pills to transition. And the Tavistock was the sort of psychological gatekeeper. So you go to the Tavistock, you're seen by the Tavistock, you're assessed there, and then you're moved on to UCL where the, uh, the hormones are given. And my wife became very unhappy with what was going on back then. Marcus, sorry to interrupt. Will you keep interrupting because I'll carry on. <laughs> no, no, but no, it's, it's all great. I just want to clarify for the viewers and listeners, when you say kids, how old are these children? Well, th- this, this whole area has changed exponentially. So if we went back to the first 30 years of my time in psychiatry, there were small numbers of people that would transition post-18, mainly male to female, mm. sort of. 85%. In the last 15, 20 years, there's been this exponential rise and a completely different cohort. And these are 85% female to male, and they're getting younger and younger. So I think in her day, there were a lot of 15, 14, 15, 16 year olds. Now you're getting kids of 10, 11, 12. So the age at which kids are wanting to transition get, is getting pushed lower, and the age at which people are prepared to give hormones has got lower and lower. Mm. As time's gone on. And you mentioned that your wife was becoming increasingly unhappy at this trend. What was it that she was concerned about? Well, basically, our usual approach would be to do a thorough psychological investigation of what was going on with the kid, what's going on with the family. Lots of these kids are on the autistic spectrum. They have all sorts of secondary comorbid um, issues. They're they're sort of um, socially phobic. They've got eating disorders. They may be depressed. And what she felt, there should be a thorough psychological investigation as was the Tavistock's tradition, into family dynamics, individual psychology. And she felt that there was too much of a willingness to sort of go along with the kid in terms of the kid's idea. They've got, there's one problem with one solution, and they basically want to get through past the gatekeepers onto UCL. Mm. That's that's a generalised picture, but it it was a sort of predominant, um, picture that was being presented. So I'd say I was a part of the senior management. I say, well, what we would usually do, it's very multidisciplinary. It's not like a traditionally medically hierarchical uh, service. You've got um, lots of different disciplines and you're used to sort of discussing and debating approaches. And I said, well, you've got to go back and, and challenge the culture. And she felt, and she was quite a senior person by the time she'd arrived in this service, this was was not welcome. It was a sort of shutting down of any dissent or wish to examine what was going on beneath the surface for the kid, et cetera, et cetera. And she felt she got nowhere. It rapidly became apparent there was a politicisation of this whole area. Mm. So, again, unusually... There was a very close relationship with uh, mermaids and um, with gender intelligence, the the uh, the trap charities, and they had an unusual sort of influence over the sort of culture. 
Um, now, I, when I was in charge of the adult and adolescent department, I would have uh, relationships with Mind and some of the charities, but they, but they wouldn't sort of insist on the culture or look, ask me to run them by the protocols for treatment, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a sort of enormous policy capture into this area where you've got the affirmation model, which was adopted with virtually no evidence and uh, jettison in um, what used to be in place was what's called watchful waiting, which is that gender dysphoric kids, you know, most of them would desist if supported and left to their own devices. Um, so there's a sort of huge capture of, of the clinical environment. I think that once your sort of um, your decision making is based on a sort of belief, a pre-existing belief structure, maybe embedded within the clinicians, maybe met by the parents and some of the parents and some of the kids, you, you're, you're not in a clinical environment. You see, I, lots of people, you know, will come into psychiatry and they when people are in a sort of chaotic state of mind and they feel that their minds are falling apart they often focus down narrowly on there's one problem with one solution now psychological health is usually based on the opposite it's based on sort of opening things out thinking that we're complicated we've got many different moving parts as a personality and that usually our problems are made up of all sorts of things coming together so we're trying to sort of open things out for, in, for, for kids, for example, you're saying, okay, that's what you believe. Let's have a look at what's who you are, what's going on beneath the surface, what might be troubling you. Let's open this dialogue out so we think about things in the round. Um, and you're, you're, you're not going along with um, fixed beliefs. There's one problem and one solution. Mm. So just one more thing. So one thing that's often um, talked about is that the kid's completely certain. Well, for me, that's a red flag. You know, that if you're making very serious decisions, you would expect to have doubts, questions, anxieties, conflicts. The absence of those is a problem. You know, and we believe and, and we know as psychoanalysts, you know, that beliefs can be driven by all sorts of forces, not all of them healthy or rational. You know, so a person comes to me and says, I'm absolutely sure I'm X. And my job isn't to butt heads with them, but it is to say, well, hang on, I wonder why you, you're, you're so fixated on this belief and why you have to drum that into me that I can't challenge it. Because sort of tyrannical states of mind, again, as psychoanalysts, you're sort of wary of. You sort of think, well, hang on a minute. What's driving this and why can't you, why can't we examine this area? Because, you know, most most of the time we know that sort of when we're in a healthy state, you know, you're not so defensive. You can have things examined and looked at from different points of view. But when you become fanatical, it's usually being driven by something else. And that's my job as a psychoanalyst is trying to understand what that is. What happened was when I took up this voluntary position as governor, two things landed on the governor's desk. And as a governor, my job was to sort of oversee, is the trust doing what it's supposed to be doing? Um, 
We're not part of management. We're just a sort of watchdog, if you like. And two things came on the desk. One was a letter written by 10 parents whose kids were being treated by JIDs. Basically, what they said, it was a very detailed letter saying, we had hoped our kids all got comorbid problems. We'd hoped there'd be a thorough psychological investigation, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't happen. We're, we're not happy. We feel like the, our kids are being fast-tracked through to the medication. So that was one thing. Then a colleague of mine, Dave Bell, who's probably the best-known clinician in Tavistock, um, who was the staff governor previously, previous, um, uh, and I, we didn't overlap. I, I, I started as governor, he'd left. And basically, he'd been approached by 10 members of staff from JIDS with very similar concerns to the parents. So he'd done a report. The trust knew about it. And then the report was presented to the trust board, I think. That's right. I think that's right. And, of course, it was saying a lot of similar things. Staff felt the relationship with mermaids was too close. A lot of these kids that were being transitioned had got secondary and so quite comorbid problems, um, that there wasn't enough interest in sort of debate and discussion within the culture of the service, et cetera, et cetera. What the trust did was they were very unhappy about the report. They wouldn't let me see the report. If I, despite the fact I said, look, I want to see this report. If I'm going to adjudicate whether the trust is doing its job, I've got to see all the materials. That was withheld, so I thought, that's odd. Hmm. Why would you withhold that report from uh, a governor? And there were other governors that requested it as well. The second thing was, oh, that's right. So then they set up, um, the medical director was going to do the trust report. So several of us said, no, that's fine, but we'd like Dave Bell to be at the final hearing of the report so he can hear whether the medical director's report is addressing the concerns raised by the staff. Mm. No, he can't. So a sort of, I don't know, um, there was quite a few emails went backwards and forwards over a sort of six-month period contesting this and, and it was contested when we met and it, it appeared to me that the trust wanted to use the medical director's report to bury the concerns about the service. And, and I could see then the extent to which the trust and its management of the service was politicised. It's quite extraordinary what's gone on. And sometimes when you, when you talk to people, they go, it can't be as bad as you say it is. You must be, I don't know, you've lost the plot, you've, you've hit a midlife crisis, you're angry with the Tavistock. No, it, it really is quite extraordinary. It, you know, as a mental health practitioner and someone who's proud to be in the business that I'm in, I'm really quite ashamed by, you know, the lack of... It, this is political belief and ideology over rational scientific argument. Our brilliant and returning guest needs very little introduction. Nigel Farage, welcome back to Trigonometry. It's good to be here and not doing it via blooming Zoom. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a real pleasure. On the fuel bill. 
side of things, which is just, I still don't think people understand what's about to happen. I really don't think they understand the first week of April when those bills hit the mat uh, for their Q1 at gas and electricity bills. There's, there's going to be absolute shock and outrage. Number one, massive mistake. The Conservatives adopted price caps. Can you believe it? Can you believe that a Conservative government... I mean, why not set a price for a loaf of bread? Miss what the Marxists did. In, in, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, nuts policy. It never works. It's nearly always counterproductive. But it leads to a much bigger question. Net zero is, in economic terms, I think the most self-destructive policy that has ever been put forward by a British government in the history of the nation. That doesn't mean uh, that I'm against finding ways of producing energy uh, that emit less CO2 and cause less environmental damage. But I'm a pragmatist. You know, we still burn four and a half million tonnes of coal a year in this country. We have to to make steel. Do you know what? We import it all. We're importing 50% of our natural gas when we've got vast reserves, possibly as much as a trillion pounds worth of natural gas in Lancashire and Cumbria alone. Hey, that's half the national debt. It's quite interesting when you look at some of these numbers. And a lot of jobs too. Uh, Tens of thousands of well-paid jobs. And if you're going to use the blooming stuff anyway, you might as well make it here. The Americans rethought their energy policy five, six years ago. And the price of natural gas in America is half the price that it is here. We then have whopped onto people's bills incredibly. 25% of your electricity bill is green subsidies. Money that goes to rich landowners. Money that goes to large foreign companies building wind farms. We've put so much faith in wind energy, or if truth be told, so much money has been made out of wind energy by those in the elites that we leave ourselves vulnerable at some point in the not-too-distant future to blackouts. So, yes, commodity prices globally have gone up. But we've left ourselves absolutely exposed, not just to world markets, but left ourselves exposed. Uh, you know, 9% of our electricity comes from France through an interconnector. You know, so I think we should be self-sufficient in energy. We should be aiming uh, with areas like gas to get people's bills down. I don't think a penny piece should go uh, to massive global industries in the form of green subsidy. Um, So I think this, I've got a feeling actually that the energy debate and the net zero debate Mm. is going to be huge. And Boris stands up and says, isn't it marvellous? We've we've cut our CO2 output by 44% since 1990. Well, if you close down nearly all of your chemical plants, your aluminium smelters, your refiners, and and you move steel steel plants from red car to India, and and then import the products back, you yourself may be producing less CO2, but globally, the net game is, is even more CO2 is being produced. So I think we've got this hopelessly, catastrophically wrong. And I think it's a function of... And, and by the way, Labour are just as bad on this, if not worse. And I think it's a function of career politicians, a function of people living inside metropolitan bubbles in London, um, prey to... Uh, the lobbying influences of some people who are rather good uh, at this, and utterly disconnected 
from the real world. And it's about to blow up this year. It's about to blow up. Mm-hmm. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.